This is the Monday, November 27, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine visits a beloved period of mine, the turn of the 20th century. Once there, we'll witness William McKinley's rise to the White House. Born in Niles, Ohio in 1843, and raised by strong Scottish parents with a solid Christian faith, McKinley was a quiet sort. And, as happens with historical figures who don't leave a big paper trail, especially when their lives are cut short as McKinley's was, historians have been quick to fill in the blanks or assume the person just didn't run that deep. The truth is, McKinley did run deep, and the American people's love for him ran deep too. He was the most popular president since Abraham Lincoln at the time of his assassination, and you don't get that much love from the American people if you're just a figurehead in a top hat. As you may know, William McKinley is one of my personal heroes, but most folks get a little bemused when I cite him as a role model. Here to share a historical perspective of the nation's 25th president is Robert W. Mary. He brings us President McKinley, architect of the American century. Robert Mary was the editor of National Interest from 2011 to 2013 and previously served as a Washington correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. He was also editor-in-chief and CEO of the Congressional Quarterly. You've seen his work in the New York Times, Weekly Standard, National Review, and the American Spectator. Or maybe you've watched his appearances on shows like Meet the Press. His previous books include A Country of Vast Designs, which covers previous president James K. Polk. And he wrote Where They Stand, The American Presidents in the Eyes of Voters and Historians. Okay, now that we've taken our spot in the receiving line for a chance to shake hands with the last Civil War veteran to serve in the White House, let's join Robert W. Mary and meet President McKinley architect of the American century. I'm joined on the line by Robert W. Mary, author of President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show today. It's my pleasure, Dean. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, this is admittedly one of my favorite things to do, talk about President William McKinley and the Gilded Age in general, but especially this forgotten president, this underserved president, always rushed to look at those polls like other kids would go to look at baseball stats or the rankings of a college football team to find where McKinley is in the presidential polls, and he doesn't 
land where I think he should land as somebody who's studied his career and read a lot about him and finds him inspiring. So I've stated at the outset that I'm a gold bug, which was the nickname, as you know, for people who favored McKinley and the gold standard over the free coinage of silver, an issue that modern Americans usually find very bewildering. What inspired you to turn your writing talents to restoring this Ohio Civil War veterans legacy in the hearts and minds of the American people? Well, Dean, truth be told, it wasn't on, he wasn't on my radar screen. I was planning to do a book on the 1850s. After I had done the book on James K. Polk, I tried to sort of restore him to his legitimate station uh, in the uh, consciousness of the American people, or at least American historians. And then I did a book on the presidency, and I was pursuing with Simon Schuster the idea of a particular angle on the 1850s, the run-up to the Civil War, which is a period that fascinates me. But Jonathan Karp, who was a very uh, important and brilliant official at the Simon Schuster, suggested to me that he was interested in maybe keeping me looking at presidents, because I'd done the Polk book, which did quite well. I'd done a book on the presidency, which didn't do as well as they thought it would or hoped it would, but nevertheless did fine. And then I was seemed to be sort of establishing myself as a presidential guy, Maybe I should do another president and see if there's anybody that I thought that we could kind of resurrect in the eyes of the American people and historians. And I thought that uh, there was only one president other than Polk that I thought really merited that kind of treatment, and that was William McKinley of Ohio. So Carp and I and my editor, Alice Mayhew at Simon Schuster, all got together and concluded that that would be my next project. And so it was. So I can't say it was my idea specifically, but I was very happy to pursue that that particular angle. But something sparked in you to name McKinley when they asked if there was anyone else in the stable. It's kind of like I imagine Marvel movies are. Once those were successful, people came running to Marvel and DC Comics and said, do you have any more comic book characters that are really good like these? Because (laughs) these went well. So something made McKinley jump to the front of your mind. What was it? Well, my book on the presidency was called Where They Stand, the American Presidents in the Eyes of Voters and Historians. And it was a book designed to explain to readers how the presidency works and how presidents fail and succeed and how we assess them in history and how those assessments can sometimes change through history. And so as a result of that, and I had known a little bit about McKinley over the years, but as a result of my research for that particular book, it occurred to me that he was an underrated president. And I sort of expressed that in the book. And Jonathan Karp picked up on that as well and said, well, what do you think about McKinley? And I said, I think he's the guy. I frankly don't think there's anyone else that I would have any great interest in trying to resurrect. Most of the other presidents of serious consequence have been pretty well picked over. And that doesn't mean that there couldn't be another good biography But the two that I really felt were underrated and deserved to be brought forward were James Polk, which I had done, and now McKinley. You can see, looking at the list of presidential terms, it's very easy to overlook those one-term presidents, especially the ones that were in that gray area around the Civil War. You think of 
Andrew Jackson. Here's a big dynamic figure. Lincoln, of course, big dynamic figure. And most of them in between them just decided they would do the one term and done and go away. And we don't have video of them, which people love to have, be able to go and sit and listen. They don't have the big presidential libraries today. You can't go to Boston, for instance, and sit there and research the Kennedys for a couple of weeks on sabbatical and learn there. But McKinley, what always amazed me was He's a two-termer, and not only is he a two-term president, but he's an assassinated president. And you would think if there was a way to get into the history books, that's the old joke even about rock stars and about artists. They say, well, if you get killed, that's very good for your career, for your place in history. Your art immediately goes up. So it was always amazing to me that McKinley was lost, that he was really overlooked and even denigrated. Even something as sacred as his wartime service was denigrated. And that was partially his doing because he was modest. He was self-effacing, downplayed things. They wanted to give him the Medal of Honor later for his service at the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest single day in American history, even bloodier than 9-11. But he squashed all those things. He preferred to be what they would later call with Eisenhower the hidden hand. You write in President McKinley, architect of the American century, quote, Though disagreements often were stark, young McKinley developed a style of argumentation that avoided animosity. Putting those things together, thinking of him growing up at a time in the Civil War when the country's literally tearing itself apart, when he's having to find a way to have a little bit of brotherhood, then as president, try to bring the nation back together. I wondered how, in your research and what readers will learn in your book, McKinley managed to take that Civil War experience and mold himself into a successful leader that reunited the nation. Well, the Civil War transformed young William McKinley. He entered the war as an 18-year-old private. He had been going to college, but as a freshman, he developed a mysterious illness, which interrupted his studies. He went back to his home in Poland, Ohio, and recuperated. But then uh, sort of bad times emerged, and everyone in the family had to work. So he couldn't really go back to school. He was working as a school teacher and a postal clerk when the war broke out. Now, his family had been very, very much uh, abolitionist in outlook. Uh, his mother was a very strong woman of conviction, and she hated slavery, and he did too. So he entered the war without much expectation. It was just, you know, I'll have to go fight, hope I survive, and I'll get back to my life. But the war lasted four years, and he rose up through the ranks and ended the war as a brevet major. That's even by Civil War standards. When there were a lot of people moving up in various positions, that's a pretty remarkable career. And most of his promotions, aside from his initial promotion to sergeant, because he was very good at sort of organizing and he was a quartermaster sergeant, came as a result of battlefield heroics. I don't think there's another word that uh, would uh, describe it better than heroics. He was truly a courageous young man who didn't think about his own mortality at all. So the big Antietam episode is worth noting here briefly, and that is that he was the quartermaster sergeant. He was two miles behind the lines trying to provide what the troops needed in the way of food and other things. And he heard about a unit that had been isolated and sort of pinned down since morning. And the battle began before they could have breakfast. And now it's in late afternoon. They hadn't had breakfast. They hadn't had lunch. They were pretty much out of water. And these troops were going to just innovate right there in the middle of the battle. 
So McKinley gets it in his head that he's going to load up a wagon with all kinds of victuals and hardtack and bread and water and coffee and soup and whatever else, and he's going to get it to these troops. So he finds a volunteer, he loads up the wagon, they head out through the woods, and they haven't gotten to the front, actual battlefront yet. He encounters two senior officers who basically order him to turn around, and then they move on to their other duties, and he just keeps going and ignores their orders. He has to go through an amazing clearing in the middle of the battle, running his horses, pulling this wagon as quickly as possible, bullets flying, cannonballs flying overhead. Back of the wagon is shot away, but he manages to get into this clearing, out-of-the-way clearing, where these troops are starving to death. And one of the old uh, wizened veterans said, God bless the lad. He basically saved those people, and that's how he got promoted to become a commissioned officer. This is something that when you read it in the book, your heart is racing and you're cheering for him to make it there to relieve these men. And then you snap back to 2017. Maybe you even go to Antietam where they'll point out the monument to his service. And you'll see that many of these negative portrayals of him, the belittling of his service, they called him Coffee Bill, saying, oh, well, he just delivered some coffee, which, and and there's no shame in that as a Greek-American, I can tell you, delivering coffee is noble and people need it to live. But (laughs) for these men, he was doing a lot more than just bringing them coffee to hang out. An army marches on its stomach. And as author Candace Shai Hooper said to me, Quartermaster, you know what Q is in 007? She said, that's the quartermaster. That's the man who feeds you and makes sure that you have what you need to survive when you go into battle against, be it Spectre or in the real world, against these Confederate troops. And so he gets promoted. Rutherford B. Hayes also rises to the presidency. His commander takes McKinley under his wing, and he sends him on a mission. He thinks it's a suicide mission. He says, I never expected to see him again when McKinley returns, and McKinley does return. And when people have denigrated McKinley, when I've heard them do that and say, he didn't really do much. He just hung out in West Virginia on civilian duty, just guarding a bunch of trees. I say, well, they don't promote you to brevet major. They don't, they don't give you a, a promotion like that just for sitting around guarding nothing. And he had, he's not a man who had political connections as a young man. He's there for all four years of the war. He serves. And I think that that's a person you meet here in the book. And because of those strong convictions about slavery and the idealism of dedicating himself to the war, it's something you think we would all want to read. So I, I love those moments there. I'm so glad that you paused to share it with us because that service is just so noble. Well, thank you very much. And I, I agree with you totally. In that other episode you mentioned, Hayes was looking around that they were in retreat. And there was a, a unit that had been not given the order to retreat and it was going to get overrun momentarily, really. He needed somebody to get on a horse, ride through the battle zone and uh, deliver the order for this unit, this commander, to uh, get the heck out of there. So uh, he sees McKinley and says, I need you to do this. And he jumps on his horse and he goes through. (laughs) And uh, one of his old friends, uh, a guy by the name of Hastings, a longtime friend, a lifetime friend, is watching this and describing it later. And he's running through there and he's bullets are whizzing by him and cannonballs are going and and, uh, he just ignores it all. And at one point, a cannonball hits the ground not far from him and he gets lost in a cloud of dust and then the air clears and there he is and he they see he gets up to the officer and he delivers the order so no he saw a lot of action and he, and he had a horse shot out from under him this young man saw a lot of action but i'll say one thing about how the war affected him 
he learned a lot about himself, and he, I think he learned a lot about the world. But one of the things he learned about himself was that he knew he was a quiet person. He wasn't a flamboyant person, but he had a kind of a heavy quiet that ended up being commanding. He was somebody that other men, young men his age or a little bit older, responded to, and that older men gravitated to in a kind of mentorship role. So he always had people taking him under their wing and or or responding to him in positive ways. And it's hard for us, not having known him and just getting these descriptions, to get a sense of what that was exactly. What was that heavy quiet? How did he manage to put forth that kind of a persona that had impact on people without being flamboyant or pushy or hard-edged in any way? And yet he did. And he learned that about himself, and he basically crafted that into a means of getting his way in a managerial sense or in a leadership sense uh, that proved very, very effective for him throughout his entire life, but particularly during his presidency. And does it without bragging or inflating himself. I think of some of the candidates we have, some even members of the U.S. Senate, there's a few that we'll hear or candidates that we'll hear that will inflate their service or their career. Everybody does it. Everyone gilds the resume and and puffs themselves up and hopes that no one will call their references. It's a thing that they did in McKinley's day, just as people will do that today. And the idea of him saying, no, I don't want that Congressional Medal of Honor. I don't think I deserve it. There are other men who are the heroes. That's something that's so praiseworthy. And that makes you think of these things people said afterwards makes you angry, makes me angry anyway. And you having now written President McKinley, architect of the American century, I'm sure it bugs you a little. So I'm glad you had an outlet to stand up for the guy. In his piece for the national interest, Michael Lind wrote of your book, quote, the greatest challenge to McKinley's reputation in the 21st century is the legacy of historians of the mid-20th century, unquote. You spoke about how the reputation of presidents can go up and down, T.R. becoming kind of a farcical figure after his death, and people have that arsenic and old lace view of him charging up San Juan Hill and all that kind of thing, and today he's much more revered and respected. He has climbed up that presidential poll list. What is this caricature of McKinley? How did he suffer as U.S. Grant suffered, whose enemies were better writers than his friends, more prolific? Those defeated Southerners had not much to do but sit around and literally rewrite history. What is the McKinley who you really introduce us to here in President McKinley, architect of the American century, versus the two-dimensional guy that's been in the history books? Well, I'd say there are two things that have sort of retarded, maybe three really, but there two are kind of related, that have retarded his potential rise in the historical consciousness of America. And one that Lynn was talking about was the, the mid-20th century historical perspective that emerged that he thinks that Lynn thinks is false, and I agree with Lynn on this. The Republican Party was really, after the Civil War, became the party of big business and industrialization and was not really very interested in the little guy or the people who were beleaguered in society, et cetera, et cetera. And along comes Teddy Roosevelt, and he changes all that and encapsulates the progressive era, and that leads to Franklin Roosevelt and to sort of the modern presidency. And that thesis is, in my view and in Lynn's view, basically wrong. 
because the Republican Party was the party that had freed the slaves, that had fought the Civil War, that had stitched the nation back together as best as it could be done. They brought about Reconstruction and ended Reconstruction in order to maintain power. That is true. And it fostered the necessary economic growth that came with industrialization. And the, the transitional figure from that post-Civil War period that went up into the 1890s and the 20th century was not Teddy Roosevelt, but it was William McKinley because he was a man who was very close to labor. He had, as a lawyer, he had taken on some major labor cases, including cases having to do with strikes and violence, attending strikes, that no other lawyer wanted to take because it would be unpopular, but he didn't care about that. Even as president, when there was a strike in the coal mines, he'd sent Mark Hanna in there to resolve the matter. He resolved it largely in favor of the workers and not the owners. And he certainly was the man who moved America into the world and turned us into a global power with global possessions and coaling stations all over the world and a big navy. He's the one who pushed the Panama Canal and kept that going and actually accelerated that significantly. He brought in Hawaii after his predecessor had basically squelched that concept. And he, while trying to probably talk about this, you have questions, I'm sure, Dean, but while he attempted to avoid the war with Spain, he also was intent, given the circumstances attending the insurrection in Cuba, to basically kick the Spanish out of the Caribbean. And that's what he ended up doing. He was resolved to do it without war, but he was prepared to go to war in order to do it. And that was his primary aim and uh, motivation. The problem for William McKinley is, as I put it when I talk about him and people say, I've never heard of this guy who, as my mother-in-law put it, because I wear a McKinley pin on one of my hats, my Rutgers University hat, the alma mater of McKinley's first running mate before TR, Garrett Hobart. Yeah. And my mother-in-law said, who's that stern looking man on the pin on your hat? And my wife jumped in and said, oh, no, no, don't don't speak ill of McKinley. This is really going <laughs> to really start it up. But it's true. That's the image you have have of him. And I say he was kind of the opening band for the Rolling Stones. Nobody remembers who that band was. Then you get TR in. He's flashy. He has all those kids. McKinley's kids had both died in infancy. His wife wasn't very well, so she wasn't very flashy, Ida McKinley. And so he just fades away. We want to then attach all the virtue to Theodore Roosevelt and all the vices, all the negatives to McKinley. There's a photo of the two 1900 running mates together, McKinley and TR, and I love it because there's McKinley composed, looking very gentlemanly and calm and stately, and there's TR, and his face is a blur. That's because TR couldn't stand still long enough, even for that shutter flash in the Victorian cameras. He had to always be moving, and McKinley was somebody who would stand and look around, take the lay of the land, and still achieve things, but not in the way that we love to see today. And like I said, the Rolling Stones. Yeah. He does deserve credit for setting in motion a lot of these things that, when his presidency is cut short by the gunshots, he can't fulfill. And then the Rough Rider comes in, rides in, and he gets credit for a lot of those things of the Panama Canal. You mentioned that, but also the labor relations. This is a time of anarchism and upheaval. Hannah, if people only know him from those cruel 
Victorian cartoons. I have a book in front of me called The 90s, and it's not about the Britney Spears 90s. It's about the 1890s. And gosh, they just had a ball with him and Puck. They really beat the guy up. But then you read about Hannah, the main backer of McKinley in Ohio, later a senator. The guy really did have some positive pro-labor positions. These weren't the Victorian robber barons. So he does deserve a little bit of the Rough Riders legacy. Well, you're absolutely right. And I think the TR factor is the other factor that I would mention beyond the uh, Lind uh, interpretation. And it's worth pondering on that. You know, TR, as you describe him, you describe him exactly right. He was impetuous. He was um, out of control half the time. He was uh, totally self-absorbed. Even his kids said that he absolutely had to be the um, the, the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> he, he envied the corpse at the funeral because he was getting all the attention <laughs> and TR couldn't say anything or get attention, do anything to call attention to himself. And he never shared credit with anybody. And TR, you know, um, could be very harsh uh, critic of McKinley, even when he was working for him as assistant Navy secretary. And by the way, the poor Navy secretary Secretary Long of Massachusetts, who was he was a little bit infirm and he needed to sort of take the afternoon off here and there, but he's afraid to because he didn't know what what the <laughs> TR was going to do as assistant Navy secretary. And uh, he was going to be issuing orders to far-flung ships around the globe and telling them where to go and everything. And often his judgment was right, but he was totally out of line. But here's the key. The key is that TR didn't share credit and then come the TR biographers over the course of the next hundred years. And these guys sort of bought the TR PR. So they didn't want him to share credit either because they were writing about the guy that they wanted to portray as the great transitional figure into the 20th century. And so in order to do that, they had to not just ignore McKinley, but denigrate him somewhat and portray him as a kind of a leaf in the wind. They, they would acknowledge that, yes, some big things happened on his watch while he was president, but they didn't really happen because he wanted them to happen. They just happened, and he just happened to be there. Well, that's not how our system works. We live in a presidential system, and things happen because presidents want them to happen or don't want them to happen or, in some cases, can't control them. But in McKinley's case, he controlled them very, very well. He didn't do it with any kind of flamboyance or arm-waving strength. He did it stealthily. He was a managerial president, and he wasn't a man of vision. I think T.R. was. His good friend Henry Cabot Lodge was. The great naval historian Mayen was. He wasn't of that type. He didn't have this vision of American greatness. But he had this ability to perceive the significance of events and the interrelationship of events as they unfolded, and then to see how he could shape and mold them together in ways that would move the country in new directions. And he did it often without signaling to the people that he was manipulating that he was manipulating them. They didn't even know it. They thought it was their idea, but most often it wasn't. So he was very clever in that way. And I think it was also related to the fact that he was just a very nice guy. He didn't like to get into spats, and he didn't very often, but nevertheless, he managed to get his way. And he kept his ear so close to the ground, they said he had grasshoppers in it. So it gives you an idea of <laughs> how other politicians viewed him, that he had this 
effortless, calm way about him. He didn't let people get under his skin. And I also want to mention to you and listeners that I'd put the TR question all the way at the end, but there he is, Theodore Roosevelt, muscling his way here into the beginning of the interview as he did at his niece, Eleanor's wedding to Franklin. She said, gosh, he barely felt like the bride because there he is backslapping everybody and being friendly and stealing the spotlight. So his pew there in the back is shocking in Oyster Bay. You would have thought he would have wanted to be at the pulpit. Well, in fact, he dubbed the bully pulpit, right? So he was someone who very much wanted to do that. One thing I would say that they had in common is they did love their wives. TR had two. William McKinley's wife was sick. She didn't pass away as Alice Hathaway Lee did, but McKinley was said to be the envy of the other men in Washington. They felt they needed to step up their game because he was so attentive to his wife, Ida. They did lose those two children. One, I guess it was four, Katie, and the other one, named after her mother, lost her in infancy. So what kind of family man do readers meet here in President McKinley, architect of the American century? Well, it's a poignant and somewhat tragic uh, romance, really. And I think that it's fair to say that Ida was something of a tragic figure. She was the belle of Canton growing up. And Canton wasn't a huge city or town, but the Saxons, her family, were very, very wealthy. They owned a newspaper. Her father was in banking. He was in mining. He was in other businesses, real estate ventures, and he was traveling quite a little bit. And as she grew up, she was scintillating. She was clever. She sparkled as a personality and as a conversationalist. She was active physically. She was very lovely physically, a very lovely woman, petite and small, and as I say, she sparkled. And he fell in love with her at first sight. It took her a little bit longer, but eventually uh, he mustered the courage to uh, propose to her, and they were married. And it seemed to be just a storybook, sort of local romance. He was the rising political star. She was the local belle. And then after they were married in, I think it was 1871, They had young Katie, as you mentioned, within a year, and everything seemed to be going beautifully. Then she gets pregnant again and gives birth to Ida. But while she's pregnant, she learns that her mother is dying of a strange disease, probably cancer, and it really upends her. Her mother was her closest friend, and she had a very difficult pregnancy, maybe related to that, maybe not, we don't know. But that was a difficult time for her. And then little Ida is born, and five months later, she dies. Ida goes into a swoon of depression. It takes weeks, maybe even months, for her to come out of it. And he's very patient with her and very loving and very attentive. Finally, she begins to come out of it. But during this period of time, she also has some kind of an accident. It it probably was a carriage accident. I, I have a feeling that maybe she fell backwards getting onto a carriage, onto her back, and maybe some pavement stones or something, because I think maybe there might have been some spinal injury involved because she became only moderately mobile after that. And there were times when she could hardly walk. Other times she would get better, but she was in a lot of pain and she couldn't walk. And then during this time, it's almost like she's just suffering from the fates here. During this time, and whether, again, it's related or not, we don't know, but she develops uh, epilepsy, so she has these occasional epileptic fits. And in those days, people didn't understand what epilepsy was, and it was sort of like it was viewed as a kind of like a very negative thing, like you're sort of uh, mentally unfit. 
a lot of people just ended up in, in institutions. Well, McKinley never slackened in his love for her or his attentiveness towards her and his uh, patience with her in these circumstances, even as she was transformed from that sparkling young woman into very sedentary, somewhat of a peevish, not always very happy person, somewhat demanding. Those things didn't bother him at all. He just continued to smother her with his affection and his love. So people took note of this, and eventually, as he emerged politically, stories were written in major national magazines about this marital love affair, and people responded to it, responded to it very favorably. He would go to his office window every day at three and wave to her across the street, these kinds of things (laughs) that he did, right? He was just such a sweet guy, and he does that thing with her where he insists she be seated next to him. People think of him as this stodgy figure if they've bought into this mid-20th century caricature of him, but he broke the protocol when he had to his president, and that was one of the ways, because he, if she had a fit, he wanted to be there for her and able to, he would cover her face with a handkerchief, as people may know, and just go about the conversation, not make her feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned patience, and I said, if you had to <laughs> if I had to boil the guy down to one word, I would say patience. It makes me want to be a better man and a better husband. I look at this guy and I say, wow, he he really had it down. He was able to control his temper. He wasn't a guy who freaked out. He wasn't petty, didn't seek revenge. Those are all really great qualities. Yeah, but you know, some of his good friends noted he always seemed to get his way. He didn't do that just by being a nice guy. He mm-hmm. he was pretty calculating. And if you think about his rivals, just take Tom Reed, the Speaker of the House, big, solid, brilliant bruiser of a politician. And he kind of looked down on McKinley. He didn't think that he was as brilliant as, as he, Reed, was, certainly, and he probably wasn't. And yet Tom Reed, when he realized that uh, McKinley was taking the country into this expansionist new era and he was opposed to it and he couldn't do anything about it, he basically quit the field. His rivals in Ohio all came a cropper eventually. His rivals among the bosses, the political bosses, Republican bosses of New York and Philadelphia and elsewhere in the East, they decided they were going to go against him in terms of the presidential nomination in 1896. He beat them all. And I think an interesting anecdote is a congressman from Ohio named Ben Butterworth. He wasn't a great fan of McKinley. He liked him, and he was in that circle. He, he, he was in that political grouping. He was a very close fan of Mark Hanna. He was a little wary of McKinley, and he described, I think, why when he told a reporter once, and this kind of got some attention by way of illustrating, he said, why, if uh, McKinley and I were walking through an orchard with only one bearing tree, and that had but two apples on it, McKinley would walk under that tree, he'd pick both apples, he'd put one in his pocket, he'd take a bite out of the other one, and then he'd turn to me and say, Ben, do you like apples? (laughs) And I think what uh, Ben... (laughs) What Ben Butterworth was trying to say was that this is a guy who really felt entitled in a lot of ways. And in his quiet way, he managed to affect getting the things that he thought he was entitled to. And I think that Butterworth sort of captured a significant element of McKinley that was part of him. Julia Foraker, the wife of a very prominent Ohio politician, governor and senator, who was sometimes a ally of McKinley, but more often a adversary. And she talked about the masks that he wore. So uh, much of it was studied. 
But nevertheless, he was a very pleasant man, and he was sincerely pleasant. I'll make one other point here, Dean, and that is that you talked about no bragging and modesty. Much of that came from his mother. And there's a famous anecdote where she's on a train um, going to uh, Columbus. She lived in Canton eventually and when her, when, when her son t- took up his legal duties there. And, and a woman next to her on the train strikes up a conversation or tries to. And she says, uh, are you going to Columbus? And she says, uh, yes, I am. And the woman says, do you have family there? She says, I have a son there. Well, her son was governor of the state. <laughs> she doesn't think it's necessary to mention that because yeah. her modesty would preclude such a thing. <laughs> yeah, we talked about Mother McKinley, who becomes a national celebrity in her own right when her son becomes president, not that she wants to be. They ask her, Mother McKinley, are you happy that he's president? She says, well, I would have preferred he was a bishop. <laughs> that would have been respectable for her. She sits with him the night that he's going to become president, that he's going to be inaugurated, and just praying to him, Lord, keep him humble. Yeah. And he took all of that very much to heart in his life. And so he is able to do this, a velvet hammer. Presidents all have different ways of getting things from you. It doesn't have to be the Andrew Jackson who would freak out and make you think he was going to shoot you, which he very likely might have shot you. (laughs) So McKinley just had a different way about it. And people would come out saying, oh, he agrees with me. And then be able to, Mm -hmm. he'd be able to get his way that you might not even have known that that was his way. There's so many of those great anecdotes here in President McKinley, architect of the American century. You mentioned the bosses there, and I wanted to also knock down that myth about him. Chapter seven of your book is titled The Major Versus the Bosses. That's that Mark Hanna caricature of McKinley as a hapless tool, an empty head, Tammany Hall, smoke-filled rooms. That's the image people have of him, that he was just waiting for the bosses to tell him what to do. What was his actual relationship with men like, say, Tom Platt, the head of the New York State GOP machine, and who really ran William McKinley? Well, that's a great that's a great question, and, and I think that it begins with a very fine anecdote about McKinley at the very, very beginning of his presidential quest. He sends Mark Hanna to New York to meet with the bosses, and they go to a fancy hotel and have a nice dinner with Tom Platt, who was an amazing Republican leader and a manipulator in New York, and, and Matthew Quay of Pennsylvania, another boss who was a genius in his own right, and uh, he read history in the original Latin, Roman history in the original Latin, and many others who controlled patronage and controlled votes convention votes in their states. And the idea was to find out whether these guys were going to support McKinley. So Hannah sneaks into New York to meet with these guys and he gets out without alerting reporters. He's very proud of that. And he, McKinley comes up to Cleveland where Mark Hanna lived and they have a nice dinner at his mansion overlooking um, Lake Erie. And then they go into what the Mark Hanna called his library were lined with books and overstuffed leather chairs, and they sat down, they lit up cigars, and then Mark Hanna speaks. He says, well, Governor, it's all over but the shouting. There are conditions, but they'll support you. And McKinley, Mark Hanna didn't seem to be wary about the conditions at all, and McKinley says, well, what are the conditions? He says, well, Platt, of course, wants the patronage for all of New York. Quay wants it for Pennsylvania. And then he lists all the other patronage. And he says, oh, yes. And then Platt wants to be Treasury Secretary. And he, and he wants it in writing. And he sort of explains that apparently uh, Platt uh, thought he had the same 
commitment from Benjamin Harrison eight years earlier, and Benjamin Harrison became president, and he didn't get the Treasury Secretaryship, and so he felt that he hadn't been well treated, and he wanted it in writing. He wanted a promissory note. So McKinley sort of stares ahead a little bit. He puffs on his cigar, and he stands up, and he paces the floor once or twice, and he turns to Mark, and he says, uh, Mark, there's some things that just come at too high a price. If I had to give this up to be president, the office would be worthless to me, and it wouldn't be anything. It wouldn't be worth anything to the American people. I won't do it. And, and he said, if that's the price, I'm out of it. Meaning, I, I won't run. And Mark Hanna said, Oh, well, hold, hold on, hold on, Governor. <laughs> I didn't say you couldn't win. I just said, and you, you can beat these guys. It wouldn't be easy, but we can go ahead and we can do this. And so he they he kind of sat back down. He paused for a moment. He says, Well, how's this? The boss is against the people. And everybody, I think there were a couple other people in the room, and they sort of agreed. And then they said, no, no, let's turn around and say the people against the bosses. And he ran against the bosses. Now, here's what they did, though. They basically went and they scoured the country. They found everybody in any state, a Republican top dog, who could run as a favorite son to husband those votes so they could pool them once they got to the convention and basically deny McKinley a first ballot victory so that they could then find somebody who would play their game and pay their price. And McKinley had to go toe-to-toe with them, and he beat them one state after another. Not in every state, certainly not in New York. He even got some delegates from New York, however, uh, and elsewhere, and he was was nominated on the first ballot. So there's an example of, um, number one, sort of the character of the guy, but also his ability to maneuver and navigate and come out on top. Platt's the only one that I recall, I think there's maybe two other times that anyone says McKinley does get mad and one of them's over Tom Platt. So he doesn't give up his attempts. Eventually he's instrumental in getting TR named to the vice presidency, which backfires on him when McKinley passes away and TR becomes president. But another thing about Roosevelt that you made me think of there talking about the bosses and you mentioned Reed was Reed was TR's choice in 1896. He felt that McKinley was too liberal. He wanted a conservative guy in there. And so it's funny to me always when they try to draw this just stark black and white line between TR as this progressive hero on things like labor, on things like busting the trusts and all that, when McKinley was, he, as you said, denigrated him many times and just didn't think he was tough enough. He wanted war with Spain that very minute, for instance, and McKinley did. TR said famously that McKinley had the backbone of a chocolate eclair. So the caricature, just every page here you read of President McKinley, architect of the American century, it peels away the layers of those myths and gives us this fuller vision of somebody with things like press conferences, things like not ceding power to Congress, really brings the America that we know today into light for the first time and hands some of that off. And Theodore Roosevelt, unlike many other accidental presidents in history that rise to the first office, he builds upon that in the direction that we as modern Americans want to see the nation go, even on things like race relations. We want to see it go in that direction, not backwards. And it starts with McKinley, even if he's not a guy that we have a lot of flashy video and great quotes from. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. You know, McKinley has been called the first modern president um, by one of his really fine academic biographers, a guy by the name of Gould. What's his first name? Do you happen to remember? Lewis L. Gould. Lewis Gould. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. He describes him as the first modern president because, number one, 
the Congress, especially the Senate, had pretty much taken over the government after the Civil War during the time of Reconstruction. And the presidents, after that time, had never really been able to restore a proper balance of power between the Congress and the presidency until McKinley. So how did he do this? Well, number one, he worked very well and very closely with members of Congress, and he, he knew them because he'd been in Congress for 14 years and been chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in the House. So he knew these guys, and of course they all liked him because he was such a likable guy, and he did have that heavy quiet that was commanding. And then he also developed a very close relationship with the press. Uh, unlike his predecessor, Grover Cleveland, in his second term, who didn't get along with the press at all, McKinley, he didn't meet with the press an awful lot, but he did some, but he had other people dealing with him, and he made sure that they knew what was going on because he wanted the American people to know what he was doing, and he wanted them to think that he was in charge, which he was. Then he would travel a great deal and give many, many more speeches for the same purpose. And as he galvanized support and interest in his policies from the American people, that generated political force that came back and affected the members of Congress. So he was able thereby to affect uh, the votes in Congress to a much greater extent than his predecessors. And finally, he developed a um, technique of naming these commissions, usually with some significant well-known academics, as well as members of Congress and prominent senators on these commissions to study various issues, which had two sort of subsidiary impacts. One was it bought him political time because as long as the commission was in operation, then he could legitimately say, well, I'm not prepared to make a decision on that yet. I haven't heard back from my commission. Hmm. Um, and then once he did hear back from the commission, he could use that as to bolster his political leanings and his political motivations and his political efforts. So he became a very effective chief executive. And again, he did it in stealthy ways. He didn't do it in the bully pulpit sense exactly that uh, Teddy Roosevelt did, but he did it and he did it effectively. You're enjoying my chat with Robert W. Mary, author of President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. Publishers Weekly writes, quote, Mary's clear and nimble writing keeps the story moving along to McKinley's White House years and the Spanish-American War and convincingly portrays McKinley as a crucial actor in American imperialism. Before I got too far into a McKinley love fest, I wanted to address that controversial notion of imperialism because the term itself is tagged to McKinley in its most negative sense. That We're talking about what a nice guy, and I can hear people who know about the Philippine War or people in Cuba who have this negative mid-20th century view of the guy saying that's weird. Maybe they've also heard that bizarre clearly fake claim that is dated to years after McKinley died. It's basically plagiarized from a Lincoln story about the president on his knees and God coming to him and telling McKinley, take the Philippines. And it's pretty clearly debunked quote, but it still shows up as many fake quotes do. We had this president in McKinley who does resist going to war. And I think in light of that vision, something we're used to today, whether it's the Gulf of Tonkin, for instance, very similar to what happens with the Maine, the fact that he's a president who resists war, even after a U.S. battleship explodes in a foreign port where everybody's screaming at him to go to war, all the Congress, anyway, the loud people, TR certainly screaming for it, he resists war. So I wanted you to talk about that briefly in light 
of the imperialism charge. What, what was he really trying to do there? Well, I think it's fair to say he was an imperialist, but uh, I, I think it's also fair to say that he, as you note, he was not inclined to go to war with Spain over Cuba, but he was very different from his predecessor, Cleveland. Cleveland, in the horrendous insurrection impact that beset Cuba as a result of the rebels attempting to, through force of arms, get Cuba wrested away from Spain and Spanish rule, massive numbers of deaths. Americans were very disgusted and very angry about what was going on in Cuba for humanitarian reasons, but it also destabilized the entire Caribbean. And there were legitimate concerns that, okay, Spain's kind of a fading power, but if we have a lot of chaos in Cuba, some other European power that's not a fading power, say Germany, which was building a navy and looking for colonies anywhere they could find them and get them, might come in there. Well, we wanted to view the Caribbean as our our own national lake, and that's the Monroe Doctrine. So it was only natural that McKinley kind of viewed that, well, we really want to get the Spanish out of the Caribbean, but I prefer to do it without war. So he, number one, reversed policy from Cleveland, who didn't like the Cubans. He called them the rascally Cubans. He kind of favored Spain because he was a status quo guy, and he felt that that was probably the best chance of stability within the region. Well, it wasn't because the chaos of the island was becoming just untenable. So he essentially played very forceful with Spain, with Madrid, and basically said, you're going to have to end this war. And they sort of accepted it at first, and then they pushed back pretty hard. And he didn't bend when they pushed back. He basically said, no, our interest is not to have this war, and you're going to have to end it. You're either going to have to end it through negotiation. You're going to have to end it. You can end it through military action. You can do that. But we decry uh, some of the abuses that are going on in that island. Well, when the main blew up, he had positioned himself to basically put the Spanish on notice which he did, but he wanted to exhaust every effort to get them out of there short of war. And when that wasn't possible, he went to war and didn't look back. Meanwhile, he was building up his navy just in case. And so his navy was ready for the war that came. Uh, The United States won that war within three months. They destroyed two Spanish fleets, one in the Pacific, one in the Atlantic. We took Cuba, essentially. We took Santiago to Cuba with Teddy Roosevelt, the rough rider, running up the San Juan Heights. And when it came time to negotiate a settlement, McKinley was very tough in his negotiations and essentially took Guam and took Cuba, but we made it very clear from the beginning we weren't going to keep Cuba, took Puerto Rico and took all of the Philippines. I would note about the Hawaiian part and about the Philippines that these weren't status quo things. You mentioned Germany there and them eyeing possessions of other powers. Hawaii, the Japanese were pouring in their nationals there, the Empire of Japan at the time. So they had an eye on annexation, certainly. And if you fast forward just 40 short years and think if they had had Pearl Harbor already, where's that fleet going when they attack us in World War II? And then where's our Pacific fleet going to go if we, we don't have Guam, we don't have the Philippines? I don't think those two places would be thinking about independence in the case of Hawaii today or be independent as the Philippines are. So these weren't easy answers. History usually doesn't provide those easy black and white. I've said black and white a bunch of times because 
I think people want to make McKinley that, I guess, because most of the pictures of him are in black and white. <laughs> yeah, true. These were tough decisions to make. And first and foremost, he had to protect his nation. This is not a time when America has a nuclear umbrella. It doesn't have a, a shield. This is a this is a great power, a, a coming up power in a very dangerous world. So these are decisions he had to make, and they were tough. And I think that was key what you said about not looking back. He didn't want to go to war. He cried over it and said, they're pushing me so hard. But when he did, he said, hey, I served. I saw the bodies pile up at Antietam, and I'm going to end it fast. I'm going to get these men in there. We're going to win, and we're going to get out. We're going to accomplish our mission. So that was also a wartime president. So many things here about President McKinley in President McKinley, architect of the American century. One fun thing I wanted to do, you talked about him motivating I have a clip here of him from his presidential run, and I wanted you to play if Meet the Press was on the air in 1896 and you were covering the campaign. What would you say? I'll play it for you. Listeners can hear it, and you can give us your reaction. I'd love to. Thanks. I, fellow citizens, recent events have imposed upon the patriotic people of this country a responsibility and a duty greater than that of any since the Civil War. Then it was a struggle to preserve the government of the United States. Now it is a struggle to preserve the financial honor of the government. Our greed embraces an honest dollar, an unpunished national credit, adequate revenues for the uses of the government, protection to labor and industry, preservation of the whole market, and reciprocity, which will extend our foreign market. Upon this platform we stand, and submit its declaration to the sober and considerate judgment of the American people. So what do you think? Uh, well, he had a commanding voice, didn't he? And uh, he had a, a, a sort of a diction and an intonation that were very impressive. I'm sure that politicians in those days had to speak that way to a much greater extent than they do now because they had to project their voices to a much greater extent. In terms of the substance of it, yes, I think that he captured something very significant here in that he was a complete advocate of and some a politician who understood the significance of economic growth. If you don't have economic growth, you don't have anything. And he felt that growth came as a result of solid money policies, currency policies, meaning the gold standard. He believed in protectionism. Uh, he was a Republican, and the Republican Party was the protectionist party in those days. Its predecessor party, the Whigs, had also been protectionist in, as opposed to the Democrats in the 1800s who had been uh, free traders. And in fact, the Whigs' predecessor party, the Federalists, were also protectionists, all, going all the way back to Alexander Hamilton, our first Treasury Secretary. So he was expressing that as well as the solid sound currency policy. But then he mentions the reciprocity. And that's really very, very significant because that reflects an element of the McKinley history that is really worth noting. And that is, he was one of the leading protectionists of his day. As chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, he put forth a tariff bill in 1890 that was one of the most significant high tariffs bills ever passed in America. But as he became president, he began to see that the explosive ability of America to produce whether you're talking agricultural products or industrial products, was such that 
this productivity was going to outstrip if it wasn't already outstripping the American market, that there were just we had an ability to produce far more than we could sell in our own market. And therefore, we were going to have to develop overseas trading. And you can't develop overseas trading if you're pursuing a complete and harsh protectionist regimen. And so he began to change a little bit. And the, his means of doing this was this reciprocity concept, which was essentially bilateral agreements with other nations to bring down tariffs mutually so that trade can be moving much more easily from country to country. And when he went to Buffalo, New York, for the big exposition there, he, and he gave a major speech, he really announced in very bold terms just how broadly he had altered his view and how he wanted America to become a major trading nation. And then he was killed. But uh, he was on his way to a major transformation in his outlook. And I think that speaks well of him as well. I always think of it a little bit like the phrase only Nixon could go to China because he had unimpeachable anti-communist credentials that people trusted him. They said, okay, if he's going to have a turnaround, we'll, we'll listen to him. And McKinley, here's a guy whose name is on a tariff, the McKinley tariff. And he's saying, hey, we need to change. Now is time. We've achieved a little bit. And the interesting thing about tariffs is the idea of protecting American industry is everybody always said for those 100 years you just spoke about, well, this is only until our industry can get big enough that they can compete. And yet nobody ever really removed them because that's where the votes were. And they didn't ever take the training wheels off U.S. industry and let them get out there and compete in the world. And McKinley found a way to finally do that. That's how I read it. I think that's right. I think I think you read it exactly right. And it was a major transformation in his outlook. And it was brought about by his understanding of the way the world was changing. And he didn't have a a mind that was ossified or set in cement. He had a mind that could grapple with changing realities and respond to that. He is slain violently up at the Pan-American Exposition. He's pushing this idea of free trade, opening our markets. He loved what we would today think of as a world fair. He said they were the timekeepers of progress, I believe was his phrase. Mm -hmm. We tend to focus on a gunshot. When somebody dies violently, that tells the whole story. We just say, oh, right, the guy who got shot, if we know anything about their life. In McKinley's case, I wanted to leave that discussion to the end of our chat because the way that he faces the initial shooting is really a testament to his life. It tells us here in that moment of crisis. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was me and I took two bolts to the chest, my first thought probably would be for myself. I'm not, I'm not proud to say I probably wouldn't think, be careful how you tell my wife. If my wife was as sick as I to McKinley, maybe I would. But that's McKinley's first thought is be careful how you tell her. And then he sees them visiting violence. They're beating this assassin. The police and the crowd are just pounding his face. And McKinley says, go easy on him, boys. He tells his men, don't let them hurt him. And again, I'm not proud to say if it was me, I wouldn't really care what happened to the guy who just <laughs> pumped two slugs into my chest when I was only reaching out to shake his hand. There's McKinley in this gracious moment. There's nothing more more gracious to do than, than extend an open hand in friendship. And for his trouble, he gets shot twice in abdomen and one bounces off his breastplate. But I wanted to ask you, when you got to that point, when you really dug into his assassination, how did you see that fitting into the wider narrative of President McKinley, architect of the American century? 
Well, I think he was a man of rare grace. And I think that uh, when you're an extremist and you're, you know, really out there in danger and worried about yourself, have to be worried about yourself, if that grace comes out, then I think that it is a kind of proof of its genuineness. And I think that that was a reflection of who McKinley really was. So, yeah, he did. And then later, as he began to recuperate, and then sepsis set in, he was infected, and he knew he was dying. And he faced it very stoically. Ida says, I want to go with you. And he says, we're all going there, my dear. And in connection with that, he said, it's God's will, not ours will be done. So he was very accepting of his fate and didn't seem to be obsessing as Theodore Roosevelt, I suspect, would have been uh, <laughs> about uh, how much of a loss this was going to be to humanity or the American <laughs> people. Uh, he was just accepting his fate in a stoic and rather heroic way. I will confess to having a commemorative plate that says on it an antique plate from back then that has McKinley's last words on it. So as I said, I'm a, I'm a true gold bug here, I think. You're saying about him being shot and how he dealt with it. And I talked about him showing mercy to Leon Cholgosh there when people are ready to lynch him on the spot. And we can compare it to Theodore Roosevelt. TR, when he's shot, he says, bring the man before me. And he has them drag him up and he stares him down. And then he goes and gives that speech and says, I don't know if you realize I've been shot. This is when he's running for a third term in 1912. And he just keeps talking and it's so dramatic. And you think he might have wanted to die right then and there because it would have been such a great way for him to go out. So these are two very big differences in the way the two men face it. And even after McKinley gets shot, TR is continuously talking about and demonstrating how if a man comes at him, he says, if a Cholgosh comes at me, I'm going to grab him and I'm going to do this. And he's showing his boxing and wrestling moves. And he says, of course, if he comes after me from the back, there's nothing I can do. I'm just going to go down into the darkness, as he puts it. Finally, his wife, Edith, says, can you stop talking about what you're going to do if you get shot at dinner parties? Because she gets a little bit unnerved, as any wife would. But McKinley, even knowing that he's leaving Ida and how much she depends on him, he really deals with it as he deals with his whole life. It's an inspiring story with a tragic end. They recently made it into an opera, which isn't surprising because it has all the great operatic mm -hmm. elements. Even his voice there sounds like he could have sung opera if he wanted yeah, yeah, it did. It did. They said it was like a bell being rung. And until I actually heard him, I didn't know what that possibly could have meant. When you do hear him, you do get a sense of that, don't you? Yeah. If people hear about William McKinley these days, it's usually about President Obama's controversial decision to strip his name off the highest peak in North America in favor of one of the many native names. It's now called Denali, but it was a change that Alaskans long sought, and President Obama finally restored it, despite the objections always of the Ohio delegation. This has been a fight back and forth for some time. And it's easy for me to say that I want the man's name there on the mountain, just as I would want his fellow slain President JFK's name to stay on Mount Kennedy up in Canada. But when I think of McKinley and I look at him as a role model, somebody who handled things so well and was a modest guy, I wonder to myself what he would want. So I wanted to ask you, when people hear those stories and still the ongoing fight over whether or not to restore his name to the mountain, how do you think we can best act like McKinley, best honor the legacy in this case? Well, in this case, I have to say, I didn't get very exercised about this, in large part because the mountain was named by kind of explorer who was in Alaska pursuing, getting up as high as he could and seeing the mountain, exploring as high up as he could. 
And uh, he read a newspaper, a very old newspaper, saying that, that William McKinley had just received the Republican nomination for president. This was in 1896. Well, I'm not so sure how that came about suggests that we ought to cling to the idea that Alaska people should be thwarted in their desire to have that mountain revert back to its original old Indian name. So I didn't get too concerned about it. And I don't think McKinley would have cared very much about it one way or another. Yeah, I don't think he would have. I think it's as much as some people would, and you want to stick your flag on it literally in the case of a mountain. I think he would have been okay with it. I think he, if he didn't want a monument to him, to, in the form of the Medal of Honor. I don't think he'd worry too much about the mountain, but I do like if people take it as a chance to learn about him. I know that out in Canton, Ohio and Niles, Ohio, where they have museum libraries for him, if they get more foot traffic because people want to learn about him, I think maybe it's good. Maybe it's in any publicity is good publicity for him. I will say one thing, an objection people make is they will say, well, he never visited Alaska. Well, he did have that whole getting shot twice in the chest and murdered for his country part. So, And presidents just didn't leave the country back in those days. TR was the first incumbent president to leave the country, went to the Panama Canal. So we can't know what McKinley would have done if he ever would have gone. But I don't think he worried too much about those laurels. He said, quote, all a man can hope for during his lifetime is to set an example, and when he is dead, to be an inspiration for history. And I wanted to close by asking you, what do you hope that readers, when they finish the book, will be inspired to do? What do you hope they take from it, especially since you're in the political realm? Young people maybe who want to run for office someday, what do you hope that they'll take from your book? Well, here's a man who was exactly what he presented himself as being, and that's very rare in American politics today. I think it was less rare in the 1890s or earlier times than it uh, has been in our own time. And so I think that's a pretty good lesson for politicians. We can just be who we are. Uh, we can figure out what we think is the best approach, go with that approach. Um, don't cut corners. Don't make unnecessary deals that compromise your integrity. Play to the American people as a simple, ordinary, straightforward, true, honest human being. And that's what he was, and that's how he projected himself. And the American people kind of sensed that. They sensed that the person that they saw was the person that he actually was. And that's not always the case with politicians. So they responded to that. But by and large, I don't necessarily look for too many lessons in history in terms of uh, personalities. I hope that my readers will look at this period, the 1890s and earlier, as a remarkably fecund and vibrant time in American history when, when America was going through a transformation, all part of this great expansionist zeal and impulse that had been driving America. It drove America in the 1840s in the Polk years that I wrote about, and it was driving America in the 1890s with McKinley and later with Roosevelt and others. And that's a great chapter in the American saga, and that's what I tried to bring to life. Well, Robert W. Mary, author of President McKinley, Architect of the American Century, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the major today. He really is an inspiring figure, which is not to say that he's a perfect guy. Everybody has their flaws. I think people will find a well-rounded portrait here in your book. McKinley had many of the qualities that 21st century Americans say we want in our leaders, even if he had none of the flashy qualities that we actually enjoy from our 
presidents. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I hope so many people read it that it kicks McKinley up several notches in the next POTUS poll. Well, that'd be nice. We'll see what happens. Again, the book is President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Robert W. Mary for joining us and for giving me a chance to do one of my favorite things in history, talk about a forgotten figure who deserves so much better from us than a two-dimensional portrait in books about other people. Let us know what you think of President McKinley, architect of the American century, and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. A personal note on the USS Maine. I want to thank author Candace Shy Hooper, who I interviewed for her book, Lincoln's General's Wives, for women who influenced the Civil War, for better and for worse. I mentioned in our chat her remark about how important quartermasters are and how McKinley, like General Ulysses S. Grant, also a president, was a quartermaster who men depended on to bring them supplies in the heat of battle. When we discovered our mutual admiration of the period and Major McKinley, Candace Shy Hooper was kind enough to send me a unique gift. Pins made from the steel salvaged off the USS Maine. Each one of those pins is a solemn piece of history that connected me to this time like nothing else could. I'd also point out to anyone who's visiting Central Park or Columbus Circle in Manhattan, take note of the USS Maine Memorial sitting at the southwest corner of the park. Well, that's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.